Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Prayed with some pastors in Toronto as we prayed for our churches during Easter. It just I was reminded again how we are increasingly a, a post-Christian nation. All kinds of folks in the GTA who actually don't know what Easter is. Something to do with bunnies and spring and eggs and uh, and so I, I want to just remind us today. Maybe maybe some of you will hear for the first time what this Easter story is about. But before that, um, before The Daily Show, before John Oliver, before um, Babylon Bee, there was the OG of satirical news, uh, The Onion. Anybody hear of The Onion? Yeah, yeah, the cool people in the room know what I'm talking about. It cl- the, clearly outrageous headlines that that would actually fool some people. And uh, here's some of my favorite headlines. Um, Archaeological dig uncovers ancient race of skeleton people. (laughs) That'll take a minute to sink in. Um, World scientists admit they just don't like mice. I like that one. I want to be in the Olympics someday, says delusional kindergartner, already four years behind elite training. (laughs) And then there was this one, which was both uh, satirical but accurate. World death rate holding steady at 100%. Uh, Sometimes it's worth reading the article, too. It says, the World Health Organization officials expressed disappointment Monday at the group's finding that despite the enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals, the global death rate remains constant at 100%. Death, a metabolic affliction causing total shutdown of all life functions, has long been considered humanity's number one health concern, (laughs) responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities worldwide. The condition has no cure. I was really hoping that with all these new radiology treatments and rescue helicopters and exercise equipment and what have you, we might make at least a dent this year, who director... General Dr. Gernst Blatt said. <laughs> Gernst Blatt. Unfortunately, it would appear that the death rate remains constant and total as it has since the dawn of time. And uh, that had been the case, of course, death and taxes forever until a Sunday 2,000 years ago. And people started saying, He is risen. And people would respond, He is risen indeed. The resurrection isn't sort of a nice aspect of the Christian faith. Our faith is actually built around it. Let me read you what one of the leaders of the early Christian movement, a man by the name of Paul, had to say about its centrality. Here's what he says. If there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, 
but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. If Christ weren't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark, as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. I've said it before, but if there's no resurrection, let's let's please stop renegotiating our lease. Let's let's all the all the volunteer hours that you good people have given, like what a waste. All the generosity, the money that you've given, what a what a sad state to have given it to something that's not true. In fact, let's just kind of live for ourselves and and party like it's 1999. Because if the resurrection isn't true, we're fools. But then Paul says this, but the truth is that Christ has been raised up. On other Easter's, I've talked about the evidence that we have, practically unequivocal evidence that the resurrection of Jesus is not just a nice Sunday school story for kids, but it's an historical event that is logically, academically, intellectually near impossible to refute. And today, though, I'm not here to historically or scientifically or logically try to convince you of the reality of the resurrection. I can give you some great resources if, if you're interested in that. But I wonder if there's a bigger question that some of you have come in here with. The question of, so what? So what? So what if the resurrection is true? Why should I care? What difference does it make in 2023? It, you know, <clears throat> it's hard raising a family. It's hard with all these interest rate hikes and <clears throat> inflation, and it just keeps so bad that I can hardly keep my head above water. And there's sickness, and there's mental health issues, and so what? Why should I care about one man's resurrection 2,000 years ago? Help me today, because if, if, if this is a faith just celebrating what happened in the past, but offers nothing for me right now, you know, I'm not sure I, I have the time or the inclination. I, I got dragged here early on my one day off. So make the case that this actually means something to me in the GTA in 2023. And there's maybe even some lifelong Christians in the room who just need to be reminded today. You know, we, we can forget the difference the resurrection of Jesus made and continues to make in the individual's lives. So with that in mind, I just want to look at three people. Oh, you're reading my mind, brother. <clears throat> he has the gift of discerning of pastors, spirits. Um, I, want to, I want to look at three real people who came face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And now, uh, with each one, the, uh, the resurrection made all the difference. They just needed to be reminded that Easter changes everything. And so, let's start with a woman named Mary Magdalene. The Bible uh, tells us that she had been a severely 
troubled woman, a sick woman, uh, possessed by up to seven demons, the Bible says. Now, while she uh, may have been possessed by demons, it was also sometimes a euphemism in that day for having the most severe illnesses, maybe even what we would call today severe um, mental health issues, um, some sort of bondage or addiction maybe. Whatever it was, when Jesus encountered her, he healed her and he gave her a new beginning. And she was so grateful for what Jesus did that she devoted her life to his cause, to his ministry, to his mission. And she grew close to his mother and the rest of the family and the disciples. She's mentioned 14 times in the, in the New Testament, which makes her one of the more prominently featured women in the entire uh, Bible. And one of those scenes was immediately after the resurrection, when she went to check on the tomb and anoint the body of Jesus with spices. This was a, this was a common uh, thing for the Jews of that day. It was an act of, of love and honor and devotion. They didn't embalm the dead, but as a show of reverence, they would anoint the body with spices. And uh, when she got there, she found the stone rolled away from the tomb and the body was gone. And let's just read what happened next. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stopped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. Mary had been grieving over the death of Jesus, and rightfully so. She'd seen it all. She'd seen the crucifixion itself. You know, when all the other disciples had fled, except maybe John, Mary Magdalene stayed at the cross, along with uh, John and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then, grieving over this man who she had become so close with, um, when she went to that tomb on that first Easter morning, she found that the, the body was, was gone. Now, her most natural inclination was to think that there had been a, a grave robber of some sort. And after all the hatred she had witnessed directed at her rabbi, it, it wouldn't be surprising to think that someone might have come to desecrate the body. There was only one thing that could have lifted the grief and the confusion, and that was a risen Jesus. And that is exactly who came to her. Let's keep reading. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbanai, which is Hebrew for teacher. When you uh, read the original exchange in the original language, you find that when he called her by her name, he said it in her native language, Aramaic. And uh, that means instead of calling her Mary, he actually called her Miriam. And, and saying her name that way, perhaps the way her father would have said it to her when she was a little girl. In other words, he came to her with 
compassion. He came to her tenderly, wanting to comfort her grief. And, and he comforts her with the reality of his resurrection. That death wasn't the final word. Um, that uh, be, because he was alive, um, we would never have to truly say goodbye to anyone again. I don't know who you may have lost in your life recently. Um, I don't know how many funerals you have been to recently uh, where you had to end the day by lowering a casket or, or scattering ashes. We lost some amazing saints at NAC in the last year or so. And there's nothing like the devastation of grief. Uh, we read that Mary had been crying, which is putting it mildly, because in the original Greek language, in the, which the New Testament was written in, the word used for crying literally means wailing. We're talking loud, doubled over, heaving. And she was beside herself, and who could blame her? Who, who could blame anyone who'd lost someone they love? What else is there to do if if death really is the end and the loss of that life, that loved one, is truly forever. That's where you need and I need a reminder that Easter changes everything because it's when you are experiencing grief like that that the resurrection matters. Perhaps you've been lucky enough thus far to be spared the devastation of of losing someone that you love. And I don't say this to be, you know, pastor gloom and doom. It's just a reality that one day you will absolutely face the kind of, of loss. And, and then you'll want to know if death is truly the end. You want to know that the loss of a mother, a father, a husband, a wife, a sister, brother, son, daughter, friend is not the last word because those in Christ will share in his resurrection that is why at every funeral I've ever been a part of every grieving family I've ever stood with I I read certain words from the Bible that remind us of this truth words like this regarding the question friends that has come up about what happens to those already dead and buried we don't want you to be in the dark any longer First off, you must not carry on over them like people who have nothing to look forward to, as if the grave were the last word. Since Jesus died and broke loose from the grave, God will most certainly bring back to those, bring back to life those who died in Jesus. Did I step on your line? Sorry. And later, this is what he says. And then there will be one huge family reunion with the master. So reassure one another with these words. I, I want us, if we could, to just remind and encourage each other in song that Jesus is victorious, that the, the grave has been robbed. In fact, that the very same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is resurrecting you as well. A new body, the defeat of death, uh, that's not the only time you'll realize that Easter changes everything as if you needed more. But 
You'll need it when you are plagued with doubt. And, uh, and for a look at how the resurrection applies there, I, I want to talk about a man by the name of Thomas. And uh, you probably know him better as Doubting Thomas, which is a little unfair. I'm glad that, you know, I'm not defined by my worst qualities, you know. Let me introduce you to uh, Pastor Pudgy over here. Oh, <laughs> yes, uh, I've... You're exactly how I uh, heard about you. Um, have you have you met Reverend Potty Mouth over here? Because his his swearing is legendary. Um, I'd actually be lucky if those if I got if I got a nickname like that. It could easily be Lying Jonathan and Lustful Jonathan and Prideful Pastor, Doubting Jonathan. And Thomas was a good man. He was a friend of Jesus, but he he struggled with things the way that. All of us do. And doubt, remember, isn't the same as unbelief. Doubt literally means to be in two minds, right? You're, you're weighing things. You're debating things. You're processing things. You're skeptical, maybe. And you know from the beginning of their relationship, Thomas was of two minds. I'm not sure what Enneagram number that is. Maybe, maybe a five, but... He's asking really pivotal spiritual questions, and Jesus welcomed them. He always encouraged them. He always encouraged Thomas. I, I always hope that Knack will be a welcoming place for the doubter, for the, for the tire kicker, for the skeptic, the, the cynic, the free thinker. Um, here's an example from John's biography of Jesus, one of those gospels I was talking about. Thomas said to him, Lord, how can we know the way? Now, think about what he's asking Jesus. Aren't there lots of ways to God, right? Um, uh, there's a lot of spiritual truths out there. Aren't they, aren't they all just kind of different paths that lead to one? Aren't all the names of God just different ways of, of naming one? Um, I mean, how can, how can we ever really know the way? Are people still asking these types of questions? <laughs> yeah, they are. And, and these are good and fair questions. Well, listen to how Jesus answered him. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So it's a vintage Thomas question, and it's a bombshell answer from Jesus. That was the nature of their relationship. But then came the ultimate crisis of faith. Jesus was crucified, buried, and then rumor had it that he rose again. But perhaps like some of you, Thomas didn't believe that, or I imagine that he was an Occam's razor kind of guy, you know, that in the face of competing explanations for the same phenomenon, then Occam's razor says that the simplest is likely the correct one. And resurrection is not the simplest explanation. I get that. Thomas had, had seen, uh, Thomas hadn't seen the resurrected Jesus. All he saw was the crucifixion. And that would be all the proof he needed that Jesus was dead. But more than the trauma of watching his friend die in the most horrific way imaginable, 
it, it was also, I think, the death of all Thomas had spiritually hoped for. It was the death of hope on that Friday. And so when Thomas heard that Jesus rose again, all he could picture was the lifeless corpse of his friend on that cross. Oh, but the difference three days makes. Post-resurrection Jesus, he presents himself to some of the disciples. Now, Thomas wasn't there. And maybe the disciples, knowing what Thomas is going through, um, spiritually, emotionally grieving, the disciples rush and immediately find Thomas and, and told him about Jesus showing up. But this is what Thomas said. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So what happened next? A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Now, Take that in. There's details that are important here. Jesus appeared again to the same people in the same house. And John tells us, and John was there too, that Jesus turned immediately to Thomas. And it's like he had come back just for Thomas. Uh, coming in through the locked door, that was just for fun. Just showing off a little bit. And what does he say? Does Jesus condemn Thomas? Does he reprimand him? Does he punish him? Does he say, how's your doubt now, dummy? No. He, he goes to Thomas and essentially says, brother, we've been doing life together for three years. Um, for three years, I've been telling you who I am, and you've been checking me out to see if what I say matches up. Well, don't stop now at the end. If it's true, Everything will stand up, including my resurrection. In fact, my resurrection should seal the deal for you. What greater proof of everything I've, I've told you? So, so touch the holes in my hands, okay? Feel the scars. And when you're done, maybe it's time to remove the doubt from your heart and from your mind as to who and what is spiritually real. Because I want you to see that what I told you is true. I am who I said I was at the very start of our relationship when you first asked the question. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And from that point on, Thomas was never in two minds again, even to the point of dying a martyr's death himself for his beliefs. Like almost all of Jesus' disciples, Thomas was faced with a situation years later where he was cornered and arrested, according to church history. And they said, you know, renounce what you're saying about Jesus. Renounce that you said you saw him alive. Cling, cling to this pathetic story and you will die. And we don't know, but maybe Thomas said, I saw him. I saw him alive. Kill me if you must, but it's true. Facts don't care about your feelings. And it's said that he was run through with a lance because he wouldn't deny seeing the resurrected Jesus. Maybe even 
with his dying breath, he might have said, that man was the way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection um, can be really clarifying that way. It was for Thomas. Easter, Easter made all the difference to him. And if the resurrection really happened, you'd have to say it settles a lot of things related to doubt. Actually, it settles everything when it comes to the Christian faith. We as Christians sometimes are more known for what we don't believe. We don't smoke or chew or go with girls who do, you know. But Christianity is built on a series of principles and truths. Sometimes we call them creeds. And we believe them. Not because they're, they're some ethereal facts, but because they actually make a difference. Let me talk about the last person from history. And... Um, We're facing grief, we're dealing with doubt, but those aren't the only areas in our life where we need to know that the resurrection changes things. We need to keep it in mind when we're faced with shame. You know, Brene Brown is somebody you may recognize, and she's researched and and written exclusively on, on matters related to shame. And she starts off every book, every talk, with these three facts about shame. We all have it. We're all afraid to talk about it. The less we talk about it, the more control it has over our lives. And here are some responses Brown has received when she asked people for personal examples when they felt ashamed. Shame is getting fired and having to tell your pregnant wife. Shame is having someone ask me, when are you due when I'm not pregnant? Shame is hiding the fact that I'm in recovery. Shame is raging at my kids. Shame is bankruptcy. Shame is my wife asking me for a divorce and telling me that she wants children, but not with me. Shame is my DUI. Shame is how I feel after watching internet porn. And what would you add to that list? Um, How shame takes root in your life. Whatever you put on that list, I I just want to assure you, you are not alone. We had a whole series on this topic of shame recently. And and here's what we said that makes shame so toxic, is that we confuse it with guilt, but there's a huge difference between shame and guilt. Here's the simplest distinction. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. There's a big difference, right? Right? I made a mistake versus I am a mistake. It's why we so desperately need to have someone make it clear to us that when it comes to our guilt, that we can be forgiven. And when it comes to our shame, we are not defined by our sins. And fortunately, there is such a person who can do both, but only one, the resurrected Jesus. That's what this man named Peter discovered. He'd been personally called by Jesus to come and follow him. And over the course of three years, Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus. He actually became one of the closest and most trusted disciples. Jesus had this inner circle of disciples, even within the 12. 
Those were James, John, and, and Peter. And, and Jesus even gave him a new name. His name originally was Simon, but Jesus said, you know what? You are now Peter. And that, that name means the rock. And can you smell what the rock is cooking? Because I'm going to build something in you and through you and on you, something that will change the world. Quite an affirmation. And then on the last night that he would ever spend with Jesus, when Jesus made it clear that their time was coming to an end and where he was going, his disciples could not follow. Peter said, but sorry, Peter said, I'm going to follow you anywhere, Jesus. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus looked Peter in the eye and he said, really? You're sure that you would follow me anywhere, Peter? Because I'm going to tell you something. Before dawn, before the rooster crows this morning, you're going to deny even knowing me three times. Peter had to have been stunned. And then in a, in a landslide of events that unfolded just blindingly fast, Jesus was betrayed by Judas, arrested, taken to a, this kangaroo court of sorts. And, and here's what happened next. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. As Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, No, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. I, I can personally hardly imagine a, a, a more total and complete failure than that. It wasn't just a moral failure. It was a complete disavowal of his entire relationship with his friend Jesus. Everything his life had been about, everything that he had committed to and pledged himself to was renounced in a single night, and not just once, but three times. Can you imagine the guilt, the shame, guilt for what he did, shame that he was anything but a rock? Well, everything else that Jesus said would happen began to happen too. Jesus was crucified. He was buried. On the third day, that very first Easter Sunday morning, the stone was rolled away and the body was gone. But where did that leave Peter? Would he ever get a chance to talk to Jesus, make things right, ask for forgiveness? How would that even go? He knew what he deserved. How could Jesus feel anything but disgust toward him? But he also knew what he longed for, that, that somehow, some way, it, was it possible he could be forgiven, restored, that he could somehow, some way, still be accepted? that he could somehow, some way, get a second chance. 
But he probably thought to himself, there's no way, not after what I've done. How could there be anything worse, more contemptible than what I did? I didn't just, you know, sleep around or steal or lie. I denied Jesus himself over and over again. So what did Peter do? He left. Shame makes us hide, doesn't it? Run away. So according to the Bible, Peter went back to what he was doing before he even met Jesus, which was fishing. In fact, that's where he was uh, when Jesus first met him. And it was an interesting first meeting three years ago. Peter wasn't catching much that day. And he was kind of done for the day with zero fish when Jesus um, came up to him and uh, said, hey, uh, take me back out with you in the boat. And Peter is a seasoned fisherman, and he'd been out all day. How many know that sometimes the fish just aren't biting? That's your excuse, right? Uh, Well, look, (laughs) there wasn't anything to catch. And he tried to tell Jesus, uh, but all Jesus said, "Mm, let's try it again. This time, let me show you where. Now, imagine Peter thinking, oh, Thanks, Mr. Uh, Carpenter. Are you going to uh, uh, whittle me a fish? Uh, Whittle me this, uh, Batman. Whatever. It's it's the end of the day. I'll humor the guy. And when they got out to the water, Jesus said, "Um, throw your net here on the right side of the boat. And Peter did. And suddenly, miraculously, the net is filled with fish, so much so that it says that the nets couldn't even hold all that they caught. And Peter's first reaction is suddenly that he's in in the presence of someone or something truly supernatural. And what he says is interesting. He says, go away from me. Uh, I'm a sinful man. It's interesting how that's Peter's first reaction. That's his identity. And it is true. Peter was, like all of us, someone who was far from perfect, sinful. And Peter wants Jesus just to go away And Jesus simply says, Peter, I want you to follow me. Do life with me. And Peter did for the next three years. But now, here we are. Peter had abandoned Jesus. And he knew that Jesus would never want anything to do with him. And he went back to what he knew. Maybe back to something that he at least felt some competency in, you know, fishing. And some of the other disciples went along with him, maybe hoping that they could talk him into coming back. Well, here's what happened next. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then John said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. I'll stop there. I, I imagine you noticed that it was almost an exact repeat 
of the first time Jesus and Peter had ever met. Peter out fishing, not catching anything. Then this stranger comes along and says, try the other side of the boat. And Peter does, and this miracle occurs. The net becomes filled with fish. Was Jesus maybe saying that there could be a second new beginning? And Peter was so excited that Jesus had appeared that um, hope just burst inside of him and he couldn't even stay in the boat. He jumped in the water and goes to the shore. And then when he got to Jesus, you notice something else is going on here? Another scene is being recreated. Jesus had built and was standing around a little charcoal fire, the same kind of fire maybe that Peter had stood around three nights ago when he denied Jesus. And so what happens Next, what did the resurrected Jesus say to uh, a betrayer's guilt and shame? Let's find out. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus repeated the same question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And then Jesus told him, follow me. Interesting question, isn't it? Do you love me? Not, what were you thinking? Not, uh, aren't you sorry for what you did? Or um, promise you'll never do this again. Not, I told you so. It was simply, do you love me? And three times, three times, Peter got a chance to respond to the denial. Three times Jesus stood with Peter around a fire and said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Which fire do you want to stand around, Peter? I just want to know what's in your heart because that's what I care about. You see, God loves us no matter how much guilt we bring to the table and and everyone brings a boatload. I know I do. The real issue is whether we love him. The first and most important question, if you think Jesus is more interested in your train wrecks than in your heart, you're wrong. His biggest concern, no matter what you've done with your life, is are we going to be in a relationship? We can deal with the train wrecks. We can deal with the shame and the guilt. But will you love me? And will you let me love you? Jesus is wanting Peter to know that God is the God, not only of second chances, but a third, fourth, fifth, a hundred chances. God wants to forgive us. God wants to restore us. God wants to be close to us and accept us beginning right where we are, failure and all. But do we want to be close to God? You say, well, if that's the kind of God he is, then yes, good, because he is. That's why he went to Peter, not to say shame off you or shame on you, but to say shame off you, Peter, and said to him, follow me. Follow me. Get back in the game. I don't call you betrayer. I call you rock. And and that was obviously what Peter longed to hear the most. But hearing it took something. It took Jesus going to the cross for that guilt. 
and then rising again in victory over sin and death. Only a resurrected Jesus who, who did it all for our guilt and shame could come to a man like Peter and give him the forgiveness and give him that restoration just like it takes a resurrected Jesus to do that for us. Without Jesus, we're just lost and we're drowning in all of this guilt and shame, and we can't forgive ourselves, only a resurrected Jesus can meet our deepest needs. You know, 2,000 years ago, God the Son came to planet Earth in human form in order to lay down his life for the sins we committed, and then demonstrated that death, both physical and spiritual, wouldn't be the final word for those who embraced him. He did that by rising again, a resurrection that made it clear that Jesus was who he said he was. You remember that when you experience grief. You remember that when you experience doubt. You remember that when you experience guilt and shame. The resurrected Jesus offers hope. The resurrected Jesus offers you confidence. The resurrected Jesus offers you forgiveness and restoration. Does Easter make a difference? Oh, yeah, it makes a difference. It changes everything. Let's celebrate. The kids are going to come back in, and let's just celebrate this risen Jesus. He is risen. Amen.